Hey everybody, welcome to another Bald Movie. Jim and I went back, way back, uh, into the classics to cover the 1974 uh, American mystery thriller film written, produced, and directed by one Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, let me tell you, the ties in this movie, they are fat and they are frequently paisley. Hmm. Uh this movie is uh, went head to head up against uh, Coppola's other classic, The Godfather 2, at the Oscars and got its ass handed to it. Uh, but it's rocking an impressive 98% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes and uh, it gets a lot of love amongst uh, the film intelligentsia. Uh, lots of critical love. Um, I liked, I admired this movie but did not enjoy the experience of watching it. Uh, Jim, what did you think of this movie? Hmm. I'm curious to to dig into what you mean by that because I I think I know but I'm not totally sure. Uh, I actually really enjoyed watching this movie. Um, it's it's Francis Ford Coppola, who you know is one of, in my opinion, the greatest filmmakers of all time. Uh, and this I don't think is like Godfather level. But Spicy take. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Ooh, the Twitter's gonna be pissed at me for that. Uh-huh, one. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, but this movie is not Godfather level, but it is up there. It's really, really good in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, The Godfather is one of my favorite movies, and it's one that I've seen dozens of times. And I can definitely see the Coppola DNA here, the, the long takes, yeah. the very absorbing. Um, and like, you know, like I uh, if you like in Better Call Saul, like uh, watching Mike just dick around with something for 15 minutes and not really know what he's doing to slowly kind of come to a conclusion of what he is, in fact, doing, then this is 75 percent that. Um, and I could like what I mean by I admire it more than I like it. Um, I can see everything that he's doing here. I can see the tension that he's building. I can see the, uh, you know, what, what's been described as the voyeuristic filmmaking style. Um, because, you know, this is a movie about a guy who professionally eavesdrops on people, uh, using electronic surveillance, bugging their phone wires. So everything is filmed out of removed. There's lots of like, you know, isolated shots where a camera is stuffed in a corner of a big warehouse and like Gene Hackman and whoever he's talking to is like a small figure, you know, with lots of physical space, lots of um, columns dividing them. Um, lots of very, you know, his, his apartment is essentially the Spartan lunar, uh, moon base type of thing with some audio equipment, um, and some bookshelves and, and, and very little, I, and I, I like the, the very naturalistic performances. Like these people are most of the time don't even feel like they're acting. And I think with some of the better actors that was a really that 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 i i bought that and i appreciated that naturalist i mean gene hackman he's the fucking <laughs> it's one of the best amazing. at that uh, absolutely uh, amazing because i've seen him in so many some, things and he's a different guy in every single one and he just it never feels forced yeah yeah and i you know he's such a badass in like uh, mississippi burning and here he's just such a you know like a wisp a shadow of a of a man uh, but some of the other actors, I'm like, man, I kind of wish there was a performance to this because they're not really giving me or something just felt very stagey about some of it. Because that's the other thing is this felt very like uh, it gets frequently compared to like Death of a Salesman. 
um it felt very you know stagey and performative that way but like i said i i saw all the filmmaking techniques um there's a really kind of i think inventive uh and cool dream sequence that's that's shot very minimalist and is kind of like a clinic on how to do that and it felt very dreamlike um but just the whole time i was watching this i just i never was engaged by the central mystery i never was really engaged by the characters because this guy's just so hard to get a read on to get the, the, he, he gives you nothing to like, you know, he's, he's not pathetic, but certainly a pitiable character, mm. a miserable character. Um, I, I don't, I, I but I don't know. Like it just kind of left me cold. Um, so okay. that's that's what I'm saying. Like I admired the filmmaking on display. It just didn't tell a story that I thought was particularly engaging or interesting. Yeah, and I, I found myself um, most of the way through the movie, and I won't give any real spoilers here, but most of the way through the movie thinking, man, I hope this isn't all there is to this movie because I would have been a little dissatisfied um, had they left it sort of where I thought they were going to leave it. Um, and I was thinking, okay, well, it's 1974, and maybe certain things were a little more um let's say shocking back then than they would be mm. now and maybe i need to adjust my sensibilities but then you know the movie went on to do a little bit more than i expected and i appreciated that and i think the thing that the the things you're pointing out about like the really excellent filmmaking are some of the things that drew me in and i think gene hackman's performance was one that i one that i understood um you know th- mm. this man is living with a lot of guilt over things that have happened in his past. This man is very paranoid um, and everything that they were doing with the filmmaking and the performance was telling me that and I got really wrapped up in that story. Um, yeah. And, you know, despite... I think you're you're absolutely right. It's, it's not like a story that is super exciting, although it is a thriller, it's... But it's a very yeah. slow boil on the thrill, right? Um, and the entire time you're thinking, okay, where... Where is the thriller going to come in here? Because right now I'm just seeing things that I don't understand immediately. Um, and they're yeah. showing you a lot of that up front. And so getting into that story could be kind of tough, I suppose. But well, it, it absorbed like, me almost from frame one, like that overhead shot. Well, so, yeah, I, I was actually really excited. The first 10 or 15 minutes, I was like kind of on, you know, it's funny because uh, Amazon bills this as an edge of your seat thriller. And when I got done with it, I turned to Cecily and said, I I actually <laughs> fully used all of the seat. I, I leaned yeah. back and reclined a lot. But like I was like, um, and man, I shit, I, I meant to write down the sound designer who gets a lot of credit for this film. But like the just the 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 pleasure of watching these guys snoop and eavesdrop and how the sound design like that like warbling almost uh something from star wars kind of like r2d2 uh sa- soundtrack of them trying to isolate the audio tracks and stuff i thought that was really really fascinating but for me the wheels fell off as soon as he uh visited his girlfriend's apartment and then they continued to lose a wheel about every 15 minutes from there on out huh. before we get into spoilers yeah. Maybe I could do a synopsis for people who might not be familiar with the movie or uh, who have seen it but maybe need a refresher for what it's about. Uh, this film is about a character named Harry Call, and he is the best bugger in the West. Uh, he's <laughs> Which, a pro- maybe not the same meaning nowadays, but okay. <laughs> if you're British, yeah. maybe that means something it, different. Yeah, you just might have spit out your tea and crumpets, but uh, <laughs> he's, he's the best bugger in the West. He's a private investigator hired to eavesdrop and surveil targets using 
uh, electronic means. He takes a job from a director of a giant company to spy on his wife and her suspected boyfriend. The job is very complicated and takes every ounce of Harry's professional and technical skills to achieve. But Harry suspects the audio he's recorded might end in murder and is deeply conflicted as to his own personal involvement and culpability of any violent acts that might follow. Um, so I wanted to get into what you said about the, how unconventional this is, because I, I, I usually when I like a film, I don't do a ton of, of research cause I have a lot of my own ideas and stuff, but like, I didn't like this. So I did a lot of digging. I read a lot of reviews. I don't know who, where I got this from, but someone opined that the interesting thing about this film is this is a Hitchcock film. But they take like a bit player out of a Hitchcock film, like the guy, like normally the guy who's delivering the bug tapes from the, you know, the jealous husband from the mistress is just like, a, you know, a guy in a raincoat and he drops off the envelope and the businessman says, thank you very much. And then their film goes on. This is all about that guy. Mm-hmm. This is all about the job. This is all about his history. This is all about what makes him tick. This is all about his own weird um, world of paranoia and mistrust and isolation and it's like Hitchcock making a meal out of that little 30 second throwaway piece and like I said I I feel like I'm making the movie sound way cooler than it is Um, (laughs) because the best bugger in the west is just a really weird uncomfortable dude and I felt very I mean maybe the movie worked on me and I just didn't like it because I felt very uncomfortable watching the whole thing like his reactions to people is just so um i i don't know like he just has no idea how to relate to people in any kind of normal fashion like people are begging him mm-hmm. like uh uh is it john Cazali? yeah fredo fredo um uh, from from the godfather series and he also had a prominent role in deer hunter um i like that guy a lot and he's a pretty likable guy in this film but this just harry like fucking uses him and he won't he's his right hand man but he doesn't trust him with any of his, you know, tra- the secrets of the trade. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, his he, he's got a girlfriend that he has keeps at arm's length. She knows nothing about him. He spies on her, does all this creepy shit, probably taps her phones. Um, you know, it's the only person he opens up to the whole film is a dream sequence version of the woman that he's eavesdropping on. Yeah. And. That was by the time of like the last 15 minutes. So I can think the first 15 minutes really grabbed me. And I actually was pretty impressed with the last 15 minutes when the film kind of got to what it was, what, you know, the, the actual thriller part. But everything in between like that, those long convention scenes was interesting for like a slice of like what that Radio Shack era probably was like. Yeah, which I kind of loved. I, uh, I, I hated watch- that. Huh. Was that Murray? Is it the, the, the Murray, his competitor? I hated, I fucking hated that um, guy. Moran, that, that I blow. think is his name. Moran, yeah. yeah. I, I, I hated that guy. Um, yeah, you're I, supposed to. You're definitely supposed to. Yeah, but the thing is, is like it didn't make, hating him didn't make me like Harry anymore. Sure. Um, but I don't know, maybe that's like from being the best bugger. It's you felt like this kind of grasping at him at these con, like, oh, you're Harry Call. Could you take a picture of this? Can you? And everyone's after your secrets, maybe. I don't know. Like, yeah, like, that, did the ju- it, it's interesting to me because like Harry Call is living a life of paranoia, um, and, and you know it's it's stacked, it's topped with a little uh, cherry of guilt as well because like he's got this past where something very traumatic happened as a result of his work, um, and he feels extremely guilty for that. But the paranoia, you know, is 
is interesting to me because he's in an industry where paranoia is kind of his trade, right? Like, you know, he's he's spying on people. He knows that people get spied on. Uh, he's trying to be very careful. He's he's kind of bad at it. Like, I don't. I, I was reading Ebert's review, and I think he kind of pegged this guy exactly right. He he is not good at this. His landlord has a key to his house, sneaks in past his alarm system, and drops off a gift in the first scene. You know, it's like right. He he can't even keep his landlady from getting in. So like how good is he really at his job? But, you know, everybody says he's the best. Um, But he's living a life in an industry of paranoia. And then on top of that, he's, it's not just his work, but the people in that work too, that he's got to be paranoid about because they all want to steal his secrets, right? Moran is clearly there just to get information out of him. I think they make a point in that convention scene that maybe Moran has stolen some ideas from other people. And that if he gets this information, he'll just take it he'll he'll turn it into a product and make a million dollars on it and and cut you out um yeah yeah, there's two levels of paranoia there that i liked yeah he's a very conflicted guy because he's he's got that paranoia but then he also has his wild hair to invite them all back to his studio shop um to throw a party with a bunch of hookers and you know um won't open up to anybody but also gets bugged like yeah. you know which which leads to him kind of being embarrassed and humiliated and that that's like there there is some interesting things there like um the fact that his hobby is playing backup saxophone to a record player uh-huh like uh i can't remember who pointed this out too but that's like even in his hobby he's obsessed with enhancing audio like right. like le- le- adding you know finding the missing piece and 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 layering that in there um, and I thought like so thematically I like this film because it's r- such a wild trip to go back in that mid 70s and see what people's expectation of privacy is versus 2020 where I just I mean I know this is something you and I don't necessarily see eye to eye on but I've essentially given up on all expectations of privacy mm-hmm. um, I fully expect every phone call that I make unless I use like an encrypted signal app or something every text I send every Twitter every I, f- I feel like those are all going into the database and no one's maybe oh, listening yeah. But at any time, they could go back and, and and review the last 15 years of my conversations like some kind of library. And I've kind of uh, made peace with this. But like and and what a different world. We, we live in a world where um, everyone kind of was brought to that. That was brought to their attention. Everyone kind of like shrugged and said, eh, big deal. Uh, I want to play Farmville, yeah. whatever. Um, and this, you know, is reflected in Harry Call, this man who's an expert at violating privacy, but yet has this naive notion of his own. Like, you know, he's got an unlisted private phone number that everyone knows somehow. His yeah. landlady knows, uh, his client knows, who's not even a government. Like, like that's the thing. It's like I, I, I belabored under the fact that he, like, he was like a director. I thought he was working for the director of FBI or CIA. I did, too, for a long time in this movie. But he's just working for a, you know, big uh, uh, corporate conglomerate, but nothing with, mm-hmm. like, inter, you know, like, broad international super espionage reach. And, you know, dumbass Harrison Ford gets his phone number. It's very schizophrenic how he has this expectation of privacy when he knows full well how easy, how many tricks there are to, to violating it. And yeah. You know, and, and that leads to, I think, another great like the, the the final closing scene is great. Him literally destroying his apartment and his life in a in a uh, futile quest to to get his apartment clean, mm-hmm. you know, to, to be free from any of these strings or any of the surveillance. Um, 
Yeah. And I, you, you, I start pondering in the last 15 minutes, like what was even real? You know? Yeah. And I, I, I feel like I have a pretty good handle on what was and wasn't real. Um, yeah. The toilet. Was the shining toilet real? I don't think the shining toilet could have been real, literally. Um, I think it's more symbolic of a murder that may have taken place in there. Uh, was the or, phone or no, call it, that no, he... No, sorry. It can't, it can't... Well, could it be a murder? I'm trying to think, like, could they stage an accident with a body that was murdered? Probably. Cause, but I don't know. He was stabbed in the neck, if you take what he saw literally. Um and then drug out and I guess put in a car and sent down a street to crash into a building or something. I don't know what he did. Uh, uh-huh. b- but there are two sort of ways that that could go. One is like, well, he was murdered in the hotel. He was taken out and staged as an accident or he wasn't actually murdered in the hotel. It was just an accident. And this guy's reading too much into it because he's so paranoid. Yeah. Cause like I, I thought that like, you know, it could have been, um, I guess Laverne from Laverne and Shirley or what maybe it was Shirley from Laverne and Shirley. I can't remember which, which of these actors it was, but you know, like what happened at that hotel room? Did she like murder her husband? Did she just finally cut things off with her husband because he's got this jealous temper? Like we don't know. And like, did Robert Duvall, uh, who comes out of nowhere and does quietly excellent work. uh, Did he, uh get did the did, did the boyfriend murder him did he get did he get violent and they it was self defense did he storm off and go, get in his car and you know start uh taking corners too fast and wreck like i and so that's uh, that what led to my next question is the phone call he gets where it's like we know you know is that his imagination because i took the toilet was his imagination hmm. which then i thought because you know if if the, if uh, I I decided at the start of this sequence when we start build, breaking down. I said this is going to end in one of two ways: he's either going to find a bug, and then I'll believe that all this stuff was real, or he's going to find nothing, and I'm going to think that he's just all this is all a victim of his feverish imagination. Mm-hmm. He didn't find anything, so that that led to me my conclusion of him just you know he's letting his paranoia get the better of him. Yeah, and I love how in that shot uh, when he's looking at the toilet, it's got this thing that just says sanitized over the top, which, you know, they'll yeah. do that occasionally. Um, uh-huh. it, you know, it's it's that's what's going through his head, right? This whole scene has been sanitized. There was a murder here. Right. I know it. I heard it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, so like I said, that that stuff uh, works pretty well. Um, the other thing I thought, thought even though, again, it's like one of these things I admired but didn't like is I liked seeing a lot of actors that will go on to bigger and better and greater things like Harrison Ford, three years removed from Star Wars mm-hmm. uh, in a nothing role in which he's not particularly impressive. No, um, I'm not sure what he was going for. Uh, he's a weird, creepy character, but maybe that's what it was. The, the role required, like, you know, you need this ambiguous uh, you know, right hand man of this director that might be up to shady things, maybe you mm-hmm. know. Uh, but he's he's very young. Uh, Terry Gar, uh, as his like mistress that he breaks up with, and this doesn't that was you know she's a couple of years away from I think Young Frankenstein and you know uh bigger bigger fame and bigger roles. Robert Duvall, as we already mentioned, um, yeah, yeah. and the scene like Gene Hackman and John Cazale. Uh, I thought that it, it was a pleasure to see these actors that we will go on to be, you know, Gene Hackman is already a star at this point. Oh, yeah. He's he's past the French connection and he's he's done a bunch of other stuff, um, probably in his mid 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but everybody else, I, I thought it was neat to see them. Did you know? Did you know that Billy D. Williams has like I a minute cameo as the man in the yellow hat? I saw in he's that in plaza that first scene. Yeah, I I thought he was borderline unrecognizable. Like he doesn't look. Hmm. He doesn't look like the suave, sophisticated Billy D that that he kind of portrays in later films. Yeah, uh, I I saw him. I, I've seen him in a bunch of stuff, so I recognized him. But I was surprised huh. he didn't come back at all. Yeah, in this movie. He literally just walks through frame, and he's gone. Uh, yeah, I was paying so much attention that first fifteen minutes. I'm like, yo, what's important here? The mime, uh, yeah. the man in the yellow hat, the guy in you know the the, which was the band players. Like like all I thought like all it's that a, would be. It's not. It's all it's all a bunch of uh, distraction. Well, I, I think it's a brilliant first scene because it is about that, mm-hmm. right? It's it's about like you're getting absorbed into this scene, and they they do this very slow uh crane shot very very slow extremely slow zoom in uh from very high up on this plaza and the entire time you're watching this mime go around and i thought this was so effective because i'm like okay i think i know what's going on here i've seen enough cinema to know that this is probably some kind of surveillance operation they're Mm -hmm. probably trying to if not record at least hear this conversation uh and there's this mime going around and annoying the piss out of everybody. And I have I kept thinking, like, God, if you're Gene Hackman and you're on a spy operation right now and this mime is harassing you, how annoying must that be? But then it turns out the mime is part of it. So, like, it's it, it, I thought it was really brilliant. I, I was doing the same thing you were. I was looking for, OK, who are the people I'm supposed to be monitoring? Who's uh, in on this operation? Where are all the clues? And by the time you get to the end of that, uh, it's. It's not really so much about that, right? This is just a setup for the conversations that we're going to be listening to the rest of the episode or the rest of the movie. It, it, what was remarkable to me is like the sound design in this particular section of the film because oh, yeah. I found myself, it, I noticed like two minutes in that there was like garbled voices and I'm like, what is wrong with my TV? There's so, Something is wrong with the audio here. Um, and I I backed out of the Amazon app that I was using to watch it. Oh, really? And I was like yeah. playing other things to see, okay, no, it's not my TV. It's not my setup. There's something wrong with this movie maybe. Am I going to have to request a refund? Like, And <laughs> I, I kept, it, once I discovered, oh, shit, no, that's just how the movie is supposed to be. And it's supposed to put you in that headspace of like not quite catching, like desperately wanting to catch this conversation but not being able to. And I thought about moviegoers in 1974 who would go into a theater, hear this garbled audio and probably go, there's something wrong with the sound system in this theater. I want a refund. Like how many people walked Uh out of this movie (laughs) or walked to the manager's desk and said, I I need a refund right now. Your theater is broken. Yeah. This is like world-class Oscar-worthy sound design and it comes across as like a broken (laughs) audio track. Right. No, it was fantastic though. It it really absorbed me immediately. Yeah, and it tells you a story of like this visually cluttered, like uh, cinematography landscape is matched in the audio uh, aurally cluttered uh, soundscape that he has to yeah. just like you know we had to like okay ignore the mime ignore this guy in a trench coat ignore the band ignore like he's doing that with his technical skills isolating tracks and changing frequencies and I thought that some of the I, I thought that stuff was really cool like him messing with his Radio Shack stuff and. 
Yeah. But it's it's a process, man. Like it takes him like I think it's like a four minute scene him piecing together that he you know, if he had the chance, he'd he'd, he'd kill us or I forget exactly what the, the words were mm-hmm. uh, when that thing finally comes together and snaps, you know, um, but then the movie goes away from that for so long that uh, I just, I just, again, I just couldn't get into the, the convention scene and the post convention scene. And I guess like what, what were, what was tying you to the story at that point? Um, it, like it, once we got to Terry Gar's apartment and she essentially has series of monologues against his monosyllabic responses mm-hmm. and the movie never really got me back until like the last 15 minutes and then in fact the movie didn't even get me back until like uh when he went out into the uh uh balcony and like that blood and like you know like the the figure slammed against the glass and the blood and i was like holy shit okay i've the movie's the movie's <laughs> out of out of neutral it's it's actually driving again uh what was what was holding yeah what was your tether to the story during that like hour 15 minutes stretch in the movie it was really the conversation like i wanted to see okay what did they say on this tape and why is it important why is it intriguing this guy um you know beyond just the the duty to his job his craft yeah um, and then I mean, by the time they got to the convention the spy convention i was kind of all in watching that i think alan garfield who R.I.P. Alan Garfield just died a month ago of coronavirus complications. Uh, no shit. Who is he? He was the guy who played Moran, the ah the rival. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. By the time I got to that, he's he's fantastic in that scene when he's doing his sales pitch thing on the floor, his demo of the phone <laughs> thing. And I, I kind of I was wondering if Showtime they were going to go, <laughs> you know, the direction of like, oh, he spies on his own house and hears things he doesn't want to hear. Yeah. It turns out it was just for the demo and a joke, but. Uh, right. That was a really good engaging scene, I thought. Yeah, no, it's, he's the type of sleazy salesperson that would doesn't mind implying that his wife is cheating on him to to sell a joke so he can sell a, a, a piece of bugging gear. Yeah. But there was like, I mean, there was like every once in a while something that kind of perked up my ears, like uh, when they revealed um, that... You know, it's like he goes to confession. And he says, oh, you know, I, I stole a couple of newspapers and uh, I had some uh, impure thoughts. And uh, also what I'm doing, I might get some people hurt. And uh, that's happened before. And I'm like, oh, interesting. And then we yeah. hear about this uh, 1968 Teamsters Union job that he pulled that led to uh, a man's wife and children being skinned alive mm-hmm. and then beheaded. And it's like. Now you're starting to see, like, I, I guess he used to have, be an East Coast operation, and he moved. Uh, like, he might be have good cause to be paranoid, but like, he, I, I kept on thinking of his backstory. Like, so he's afraid the gangsters are going to kill him. He moves the uh, to the West Coast and and kind of lay and 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 starts extreme paranoia. Is that where it began? Where he starts locking his doors with three locks, and he lives in an unlisted stuff. But like. Has he gotten sloppy because he's getting a little lonely? So, you know, uh, I, 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 but there again, yeah. it's like, I don't think I don't, the thing is, I feel like I'd have to watch the film another time or two to get some of those finer points. I just have zero desire to do that. That's the thing. I, you can look at a lot of Coppola's work and say, I, well, the, one of the things I admire about it is the patient, the patience that it has. Um, yes. And it's something that's almost entirely lacking in film today. Like there is no patience in cinema. Uh, it's get to the point yeah. and show me the cool uh-huh. stuff. And I want to get home and do the other 500 things I have to do today. Yeah. Um, 
but in Coppola's films, he will take, you know, a, a five minute zoom shot uh, of the overhead of a square, but he'll he'll use those moments, right? He's not he's yeah. not just taking five minutes to do this cool shot. He's taking five minutes to explain everything you need to know about the setup of this character and this situation. And he's doing it in ways that aren't just exposition, just telling you what's happening. He's he's making you feel what's happening. And I, I appreciate yeah. that so much. And I think that's, you know, that's a microcosm. But then in the macro, you look at this film and some of Coppola's work, other works, and you sort of see that he's doing that with the entire narrative, the entire story. He's got this patience because the things that you're talking about with this this backstory for the character of Harry uh, don't really come out in the movie until you're halfway through it, at least. Um, mm-hmm. You don't understand why this man has so much guilt. You don't understand why he is the way he is, and that unfolds very slowly through the film. And I, I think that was that was part of the thing that was keeping me engaged, is just finding out more about him, because you're right, he's he's kind of a nothing of a of a man other than his work um in this mm-hmm. film but over the course of it you find out why that's true mm-hmm. yeah i don't know why because you, you talk about the way film is edited today and how frantic it is and like a lot of people blame mtv but it's it's just been a constant if you go back and the further you go back into hollywood the slower things are like if you look at the uh, i remember the first time i watched some maltese falcon mm-hmm. and i'm like holy shit they're gonna they're gonna show humphrey bogart get up from his desk walk around his desk, walk across his office, open his door, camera on the other side of the door, walk out of the door, down the hallway, get in the elevator, uh, door closes on the ground floor. He comes out of the elevator, walks across the lobby of the office, out the revolving door, walk down the sidewalk, get in his car. Dr- because like I was like, I'm like, what well, people in the, like the 30s and 40s like, whoa, whoa, Humphrey, what, what uh, you know, would you just fucking teleport to your car? How we got lost? What's going on? And like as as time goes on, like, you know, you just cut more and more and more. So you get something like, you know, fucking fast and furious where they're like in yeah. Cuba and then they're in Dubai right. with just an establishing shot of the towers in the desert and and you know um but like godfather does that shit too like i'm thinking that scene where the godfather sends uh, tom out to deal with the hollywood guy mm-hmm. they show tom get in the car drive to the airport the whole time that swinging music is playing they show the him getting the plane the plane takes off wheels up flies over Hollywood, wheels down, land in the airport, guy meets him, drives out there, establishing shot of the guy's mansion. It takes like four minutes to move him from the East Coast to the West Coast to where he has the the meeting with the guy. And like, yeah. why? And why am I completely sucked in and absorbed from the first time till the 64th time I've watched that? Yeah. And then I see, and but yet none of that is working for me uh, for large parts of this movie. I, I, I really can't explain it. I really, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably just a matter of of taste, you know. Like you're you weren't really feeling this story, and so the the tricks of the trade weren't working on you. Yeah, but it's weird because I feel like it lost me. I did feel I was really feeling it for the first fifteen twenty minutes, and then um, yeah. I, I, the other thing I want to talk about, like thematically, is uh, the political angle. Um, which seems like largely like this is like what it's known for, like the Nixonian atmosphere. You know, obviously, this came out right at the time that Watergate was exploding in the public's consciousness. And that was all about illegal wiretapping and surveillance. Um, but Coppola had no intention 
to draw those parallels. Like this is a deeply personal story about his own private fears and guilt uh, that he wrote like 10 years before Watergate. Uh, got the deal inked four years before Watergate, filmed it like two and a half years before Watergate, but like it required 18 months of post-production. And it just had the, mis- I guess, misfortune of like coming out right at, at the height of the, the public subconsciousness of Watergate. I think that's super fucking fascinating mm-hmm. um, because I also wonder... Like it was this movie, right place, right time, too. Because um, would people as rever- would people revered as much? Would it have gone head to head against the the Godfather? Uh, had it not been that like rip from the headlines thing? That again, Coppola had no, you know, had no idea when he's writing and making this thing that this was actually happening. Yeah. No, it's a weird. Uh, yeah, it might be. Well, what's the optim uh, opposite of a uh, victim of circumstance? <laughs> Like yeah, a, a, a beneficiary victor of circumstance. circumstance. A victor of circumstance. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh could could be that. But I don't know. I enjoyed it. Um yeah. I, I want to talk about another just shot that I like because so many of Coppola's movies just have shots that are really cool. Um and you kind of already touched on it, but from a different angle. It's that uh confessional shot. Mm. I I really love when he walks into this and he starts confessing, and this is this is what I mean when I, I'm talking about like the paranoia that's sort of woven through this whole movie because he's already paranoid. I think by this time he's met Stett, who's Harrison Ford. It's the, you know, the guy he's very worried the assistant about. assistant of the director, yeah. Yeah, might be following him, um, everything like that. And so he goes in this confessional and he is telling the priest his sins and the camera starts on him with this very, this opaque black screen that you can't see through. And as he's talking, and it's a long shot, it's like two and a half minutes or something, it's zooming past him. And mm-hmm. eventually, the the opaque screen opens up because they get close enough to it that you can see through it, but you can't quite see who's behind it. You just see a figure. Yeah. And it's just such an ominous, like, paranoia-inducing vibe that I get from that shot. It It makes that scene, in my opinion. There's just... I mean, I guess that's the thing that's different from this and The Godfather's because The Godfather has all kinds of stuff like that. You know, the infamous yeah. empty hallway shot in the hospital, um, you know, part of that four minute build up with with uh, Tom Hagen is so the beheaded the horse, the Carthoom's head in the bed lands like a fucking uh, brick bat. <laughs> uh, here it's like, yeah, I felt like that ramping of tension and that paranoia and dread. But there was no car full of tough guys with guns that kind of like pull up and menace you and pull up. There was no release to that tension, which might have been a deliberate yeah. choice. Like every time you don't bleed that that tension off, you kind of double into the next scene. All the way but to the I, end of the I movie, right? Like even right. at the end of the movie, there's no release of that tension. He's maybe deeper yeah. than he's ever been. So Yeah, it should have felt like a pressure cooker, but it just, you know, I, I felt like they just took me off the boil for too long. <laughs> huh. Um, I, I felt the opposite. I felt like the tension built and built and built. Hmm. I I didn't get that release, but the, the release is sort of the movie ending, right? Like, I don't have yeah. to live in this world of paranoia anymore, even though the character does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 This guy's a fucking mess by the end of this film. <sighs> no uh, kidding. She's sitting there in his destroyed apartment playing saxophone to his record player. It's. It's yeah. pretty bleak, pretty bleak ending. Uh, I thought I detected a couple of like uh, Coppola uh, Lucasian uh, editing tricks where they didn't have the footage they needed. Like uh, there's one where 
the the phone the, the phone call that I think is in his head where he hears this you know mysterious phones like you know we know you know stop digging into the thing uh, I think they had like three seconds of Gene Hackman with his the, the the receiver to his head and this monologue went on for like twenty seconds so they did the you know like in Tuscan Raiders rock, the old rocking back and forth to make it look like he's shaking his stick yeah. they did that in like a five second loop of Gene Hackman. Hmm. where like it just rocks back and then reverses and rocks back is like a perfectly looped looped gift for like 20 seconds or so um nice did you you, you were shaking your head did you see a couple i, I did see some like sloppy tricks cuts. and th- this mm. is back in the day when they were editing on film like real oh yeah physical film so splicing yeah uh, i'm a little more forgiving when it comes to that but yeah there is a shot when they're uh when he and is she a prostitute? Is she? Oh, I don't know what she is. Uh, the woman he ends yeah, up sleeping with. About, yeah, she steals his his recordings. Right, that's, right. That she's definitely a, a a call girl. Okay. Um, when they're talking in the warehouse and they're kind of like standing far apart from each other on these beams, you can see yeah. a shot where it's like she kind of starts to move into frame, and then it cuts, and she's just standing totally still, and then starts moving uh-huh. like two seconds later. It just feels like a sloppy cut. Right. Uh, there are a couple of those things, but. I don't know. I I can overlook them pretty easily. Yeah, I mean these new Hollywood kind of director uh, films have that little bit of kind of grunge, you know. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a skunk works garage works type operation. Um, although, like I said, the technical like the equipment they're using to film stock is uh, what was it? The Easy Rider. Like you could tell that stuff was filmed quick, dirty, and cheap. Yeah. On some pretty rugged, rugged uh, gear uh, and grody, grody film. Uh, this is all like super clean and pristine. Um, but yeah, yeah, they did. They they were doing the the analog editing. I would love, love to see how long the sound design on this thing t- took, because getting that like this is uh, um, every bit as impressive as like what Ben Burt does on Star Wars as far as like making these like digital snaps. And, and at the time, um, you know, this was a pretty, I imagine the average Tom, Dick and Harry didn't know like what it sounds like to, you know, like all these whistles and hums that a phone system generates and like what, you know, like these extremely uncompressed or, or lossy like recording systems pick up. Like, what does it sound like when someone you're, you got a, a shotgun mic rigged with a telephotoscope that you can precisely trigger, track someone's mouth and they step behind a Christmas tree. Uh, I fucking bet it sounds exactly like it does in this film. Um, yeah, and that I- stuff, I just, that's the stuff I love him rate running stuff through all those crazy kit bashed, uh, electronic kits and you know mm-hmm. isolating signals and rewinding and playing rewinding playing rewinding playing all these real to real systems and stuff I thought that was super super cool oh yeah and I'm a sucker for like those kind of techno thrillers maybe that's why I enjoyed this movie uh, at the core is because it is a techno thriller it's just of a different era and it's somehow even more fascinating to me to see what yeah you know it I, I don't believe that this was state of the art in 1974, but I do believe that Hollywood thought this was state of the art mm. in 74. Um, it, it's just fascinating to see what, you know, would have been considered very, very advanced technology. Um, and, yeah. and it has like a, like a sneakers vibe to it. Like where they've got their own guy in house building circuits mm-hmm. and yep. like you said, kit bash and stuff. It's, it, it's really cool. It's also, um, you know, Gene Hackman goes on in the 90s to do Enemy of the State, which is very similar to this. Before this podcast, we were actually talking about that with Will Smith 
Yeah. Um, and and yeah, that, that, I, I love that movie too. So I like that movie a lot. It's got a lot more action in it. But that oh, that's yeah. now that I've seen this movie, that's a straight up Harry Call reference. The fact that he's got like in this in Enemy State, he lives in like a Faraday cage. Mm-hmm. But this character lives in essentially the same thing. He's got his his private like uh, uh, he's got his office separated from his like techno lab with like this, you know, padlock and uh, uh, chicken wire fencing. That yeah. is very uh, at first I thought it's like, was he really worrying about that kind of but like in the, sev- in the in the early 70s? You probably weren't worrying about people picking your signals off of your computer or something uh, remotely. It was yeah. more just like physical security, right? Like he, he wanted a place in his office, like, you know, he'll give uh, 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 old John Kazali a key to his office, but he won't give him a key to the most Holy of Holy section where uh-huh. all of his custom gear and stuff is. Um, yeah. You wouldn't really have you- in his line of work, any radio signals that you're dealing with either. He's doing yeah. everything physically in the location, not yeah. transmitting anything. So yeah, no you have to have physical access. You have to drill holes in walls. You got to tap yeah. things. You got to all, all that kind of stuff. Um, did you do your research on this guy's name? Harry Call. Uh, I saw yeah. it mentioned. Yeah. Like so, the call is um, uh, the like when um, is is uh, an old timey word for like the amniotic sac that a, a baby's born in, and sometimes uh, when the babies are born, that sac gets caught up and like it drapes over their face, and like from antiquity, those are uh, considered signs of good luck. Um, and in particular, I guess sailors would would buy them because they thought that that would uh, keep you from drowning. Um, like, like, you know, like almost like a, like a primitive diving bell or something. It's, it's, it, it, it didn't make sense. It's just more of a, a totem kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I, I knew all that because like that was that, that some of that plays into like this old timey sailor superstition that I, in for my favorite book series, the Patrick O'Brien series. So I was wondering if they'd do anything with that. But, and then they, in his dream sequence, he does mention that he was born like half paralyzed and he almost drowned but didn't because of the holy oil and stuff. And I'm like, I started kind of like getting on the edge of my seat. Like, Oh, they're going to do something with this, but they don't really do much with it. I, I think there's something yeah, that char- they're intending character there. development, but that's not. Yeah. Yeah. They don't, they, they, there, there wasn't like, I was wondering if you had like seen if there's any, any, any more there, there. No, um, not that I'm aware of. Well, I think that's about all the conversation that we can have about the conversation. Next week, we're going to be uh, keep riding this prestige train uh, counter counter programming against uh, our, our remaining Westworld coverage and, and uh, Rick and Morty with uh, the 1992 epic historical drama film directed by Michael Mann starring Daniel Day Lewis, Last of the Mohicans. This is a somewhat important film to me because it's the first rated R film that I ever saw in a movie theater. Uh, so I'm and I'm, I've never I'm, seen it. Yeah, so. I think I've seen it. I've, I've seen it once since then, and I really, really liked it. Uh, so, and it's again, Daniel Day Lewis, Michael Mann. I'm expecting some great things from it. Uh, so if you if, if that sounds good, meet us back here uh, the same time for a in-depth discussion of Last of Mohicans. Until then, I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya.